You can go ahead and grab your Bibles and uh, open up to Romans chapter 8. So good to be together and so good to hear you sing um, praises to Jesus, singing like we're not going to be together for four weeks. Um, and that's really unfortunate um, because I don't know about you, but I need this. I need this, what the body of Christ is intended to be. You need this. We need to be together. We need to sing praises to our King, and we need to do it as the body. And uh, I'm praying that we get back to that as soon as possible. But in the meantime, um, I want to encourage you to enjoy these moments. Um, one thing that, that this season has taught me is just how precious it is, it is to be a part of the body of Christ and, and how precious it is to actually be together and to enjoy uh, the grace of God as we get to fellowship together. So let's pray and let's trust that this is going to be a sweet time together, hearing from God and letting His Spirit do a work in us. We're marching through the book of Romans, and as we get ready to dive in this morning, I want to begin by asking you a question. It's a question that most of us have had to ask at some point in our lives, maybe multiple times. Here it is. How do I change my life? How do I change my life? We all ask this question because life is filled with change, and if we're honest, a lot of times we look at our lives and we're not content with where they are. We're not content with what's happening, with how we're living. We're not content with the results that we're seeing in our lives, and so we find ourselves frequently probably asking this question, how do I change my life? Now, there are many answers to this. In fact, you could do a quick Google search of this simple question, and you will find thousands upon thousands of pages dedicated to this simple question, trying to answer and trying to boil it down into maybe some succinct ideas for how you can change your life. One website said this, we cannot avoid the unexpected events in our lives. What we can control is how we choose to respond to them. It's pretty true. They go on to say this, it's our power of choice that enables us to activate positive changes in our lives. Acting on our power of choice provides us with more opportunity to change our lives for the better. The more opportunities we create to change our lives, the more fulfilled and happier our lives become. That's a very succinct way of summing up what many people are trying to achieve. And there's a lot of truth to this statement that we just read. But the truth is that there are a lot of things that you and I can do to change our lives. But when we come to the Bible, one of the things we need to understand is this, there is actually nothing you can do to change who you are. It's one thing to change your circumstances. It's one thing to change little patterns of behavior, ways of thinking. It's an entirely different thing to be fundamentally transformed to be radically changed at the very core of your being. And the Bible actually tells us that what you need most is not to simply change your life, you need God to change your life. You need God to change who you are from the inside out. And as Christians, our security in God comes from seeing the evidence of this divinely orchestrated transformation in our lives. Paul in Romans 8 has been giving us this amazing picture, a picture for for the believer to help us understand the security that we have because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Security in this life, 
No matter our struggles, no matter our circumstances, no matter the suffering or the sin that we may experience in this life, we can be secure in Christ. And that security doesn't just last in this life, on this earth. It transcends this. And ultimately, it points us to the eternal security that we enjoy if indeed we are in Jesus Christ. Our security comes from knowing that we have been changed by God and seeing the evidence of God radically transforming us, making us completely new people. Our assurance comes not from the power of choice to change ourselves. It comes from God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit to change who we are. Let me put it like this. Being a Christian isn't just about saying you're a Christian. It's not just talking like you're a Christian. It's it's not just looking in one sense like you're a Christian. Being a Christian is actually about being a Christian, fundamentally being somebody different than you previously were, being in Christ, being a new creation. And Paul wants to draw this out in Romans chapter 8 in the verses we're going to look at this morning, and he's going to do that by contrasting two different ways of being. You can boil down all of humanity into two buckets. You're either living in the flesh or you're living in the spirit. Those are the only two ways of being according to the word of God. And as he contrasts these two things and compares them, his goal is to show us and to affirm in us that we are truly children of God if indeed we are in Christ Jesus. I want to back up and read from verse 1, and we're going to uh, focus this morning on verses 5 through 11. So let's read it together. Paul writes these words, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those, excuse me, for those uh, who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you." Paul, again, contrasts what it's like to be in the flesh or to be in the spirit. These two realities are positional statements. 
The flesh and spirit are realms to which people belong. And Paul's aim, again, is to highlight that the radical differences between the flesh and the spirit in order to help you and I know who we truly are, in order to ground us in our gospel security, or to drive us to gospel security. His hope is that as we look at this text and we understand what it means especially to live in the Spirit, he he hopes that what we see here is actually something that we can look at and see in our own lives, that Paul's kind of looking at us and saying, this should be true of you, this should be true of you if you're in Christ, and we should hopefully be nodding our heads saying, yes, I see this evidence in my own life. He reminds us that there's no condemnation There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation only for those who walk according to the Spirit. And as he contrasts the Spirit and flesh, he's teaching us what God does through the gospel, the divine work of God, so that we can be sure that we have been changed by the gospel, that we have security in Christ Jesus. I want to break this down into two major points, and here's the first one. God must rescue us from the ruin of sin. This is what we see as we contrast these two ideas or competing realms. And I want to break this down first by looking mainly at what it means to live life in the flesh. And then secondly, I want to look at what it means to live life in the spirit. And to live life in the flesh means this for us, that we need rescue from the ruin of sin. Because life in the flesh is just that. It's to experience the utter and total ruin of sin in our lives. This idea of life in the flesh is intended to be understood as the human condition apart from Christ. The beginning of Scripture, we're reminded that all of humanity was created good. We're created in the image of God. Humanity's nature is good. It's oriented towards God and God's glory. Being image bearers, we are made by God, not only with the thumbprint or the fingerprint of God on our lives, but to actually image him to all of creation. But sin comes in quickly and destroys the human nature and the human experience. The Bible teaches this concept of total depravity. In other words, that sin has its hold and grip in every part of our lives. It doesn't mean, total depravity does not mean that we are as sinful as we could possibly be. That's not what total depravity is. Total depravity means that sin has actually infected us to the core of our being. It's crept into every nook and cranny and recess of our, of our being. Nothing is untouched by sin. Nothing is not ruined by sin within us. Our mind, our intellect, our emotions, our will, our actions, everything has been touched and crushed by sin. It's sometimes shocking for people to hear that the Bible speaks of our human condition as being dead. Ephesians 2 describes that. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. The fallen state, though, described in the Bible as being dead is what Paul is talking about here. That's what it is to be in the flesh. It is to be dead in our trespasses and sins. And the reason we need rescue is because of what he goes on to describe about this condition of living in the flesh. And I want to break that down with maybe three thoughts for you. So here they are. Here's what it means to live in the flesh. 
There's no neutrality. If you're in the flesh, apart from the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are not neutral in any sense of the word. There's no neutrality concerning the state of death that you experience. Our position, as we saw in Romans 5, is inherited by nature. This is who we are. Those who live according to the flesh, what Paul is describing here is the state or the condition or the realm that you are trapped in in your sin. And he's referring here to every single human being who has not been converted by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what life is like outside of Christ. And I know, I know what you're thinking, and maybe, maybe you have, have unbelievers who say this. When you describe this condition, they say, well, I, I don't, I, I'm not dead. I, I feel great. You look at their life, you know, they, they, they feel pretty good. They feel fine, right? They've got a pulse, and they think they're absolutely fine. But that's why Paul gives us Romans chapter 7. You see, the law comes along beside us in this condition that we're not even aware of, and it actually awakens us to the reality of who we truly are. The law of God is perfect, it's righteous, and it's good because it shows a perfect and righteous and good God. And as we line ourselves up against that standard, what we find out is that we don't meet the standard. We don't obey the law. And the law serves to crush us under its weight, to prove to us that we are actually sinners and we're ruined by sin right to the core, desperately in need of rescue. It proves to us that we are guilty, that we're condemned. It shows us that in our relationship to God, there's no neutrality. We can't stand back and say, well, me and God are fine, or or maybe I think God's just indifferent towards me. There's no such thing. There's no neutrality in this equation. In fact, what he describes here in verse 7, did you notice this? For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It's antagonistic, it's, it's rebellious at its core. James 4 verse 4 reminds us that if we want to be friends with the world, it puts us at enmity with God. This idea of, of flesh, when Paul uses this term, he, he doesn't actually mean our physical bodies. He's, he's speaking metaphorically and he's using it as a spiritual analogy so that we understand the condition that we're in. But, but even the idea of, of flesh, of physical flesh, helps us grasp what Paul is talking about here. The idea of being in the flesh rather than in the spirit reminds us that that apart from Christ and his grace, we are obsessed with this world. We are defined by this world. We're defined by worldliness, by earthly things, not by eternal things and not by spiritual things. And when we think of, of, of the flesh, sometimes even as Christians, categorically, we think the flesh is talking about you know, certain kinds of sins, you know, maybe certain carnal sins or sins that we think are more devious in nature, but the Bible actually uses this term as an all-encompassing term to describe humanity and all of our sin. Apart from Christ, we are in the flesh. There's no neutrality. The flesh is hostile to God. It stands in direct rebellion against God. And the Bible says that the flesh is to be, to be in the flesh, excuse me, is to be under the power of this fallen nature. It's the state that you are born into, and apart from grace, it is the state that you remain in. You see, what he's describing here is, is people who have worshipped creation rather than the creator. 
And there's a fundamental principle in the scriptures that we see. It's this, that you, you become like that which you worship. And so if you choose not to worship God, the, the spiritual being who created the universe, and you choose instead to worship the, worship the physical creation, it should come as no surprise to you when you become like that which you worship, something that's temporary in nature. And then you find out in the end, it will only leave you empty and defeated. It leaves you in this place of spiritual death. And it leaves you standing hostile to God. No neutrality. Secondly, here's what it means. It means no affinity. Apart from the grace of the gospel and the working of the spirit of God, there's no desire for God for those who are living in the flesh. None. No passion for him. No longing for him. Not truly. And he uses this term throughout this section. Look at verse 5 with me. For those who live according to the flesh, look at this language here, set their mind on the things of the flesh. Verse 6, for to set the mind on the flesh is death. This, this term, this idea of setting the mind, it, it's, it's describing the, the holistic orientation of our being the fundamental place of our desire. So it's, it's not just merely talking about our intellect. It is talking about our, our mind, the way we think. It's talking about our emotions. It's talking about our affections. It's talking about our, our will. And ultimately, it's talking about our actions. This mindset is all-encompassing. And he says that those who are in the flesh, they have this orientation towards the stuff and the pleasures of the world and the pursuit of this world and the pursuit of sin The flesh is a mindset that is set on everything that is godless. And according to Paul, our, our mindset, this is fascinating, our mindset actually expresses our basic nature and proves that we are either a Christian or a non-Christian. In other words, you can look at what somebody fixates upon. You, you look at what drives somebody, what motivates their living and their lifestyle, their, their behavior, and, and that is exposing the reality of who they truly are. Are they in Christ or are they in the flesh? The mindset of fallen humanity is not set upon God. Its affinity or its desires are the things which pander to our ungodly self-centeredness. That's ultimately what it looks like to be in the flesh. We all have this affinity for self in our, in our fallen human nature. Every one of us is bent inwards where we're oriented towards ourself. We are inherently self-centered because of sin. And the world that we live in actually panders to this. Not only does it pander to this, it, it, it displays this in kind of this exponential form, everywhere you look, the world wants you to be fixated upon you. What do you want? What's best for you? What do you enjoy? Right? Think about the consumeristic, materialistic culture that we live in. It is so fixated upon comfort and leisure and pleasure. It's driven by getting more, making something of yourself, indulging yourself in anything you want. You know, sadly, I think this kind of self-centeredness actually creeps into the church, and in many ways, churches can be guilty of even 
propagating this kind of self-centeredness. Oftentimes, we, we walk into church, and, you know, the dominant thought in our mind is, like, well, I, I wonder, what I, I wonder how, how beneficial this is going to be for me. I wonder what I'm, I'm going to get out of this day. Preacher, what you got for me today, right? Well, I, I hope you get something, by the way, when you come here. But there's this fundamental idea within us that, that somehow we think the primary focus of the church is really about me and what I get out of this. And, you know, you know we come into the church and, and we, we think, like, okay, if I don't get what I want out of this, well, I'll just go find a place that more, caters more to my, my style or what I'm looking for. See, we become the center of, of the focus. As, as, if what we're do, as if this is some kind of a TED Talk to give you, like, five life hacks. It's not what this is. This isn't a self-help, you know, session. This, isn't enterta- this is not entertainment, right? Mark and the team, they're not up here putting on a show so that you can sit back and be like, oh, that was, that was so great. When, when we clap, we're not, we're not clapping because they're so great. We're clapping because God is so great. You, you see, the, the shift in our mind needs to be, we need to walk in and the priority of focus needs to be this. We are not here. I'm not f- first and foremost here for me. I am here for who, church? Who? I'm here for God. I'm here for God. And listen, ironically, when we become God-focused, when we become God-centered, is when we actually get the very things we need. It may not be the things that we're looking for when we walk into the doors, but God has a way, listen, of reorienting the desires of our heart or our perceived needs to show us that by the time we leave this place, hopefully what we see is this, Jesus is what I need. Jesus is what I need. It's so ironic, isn't it, that God does want to change you. He does want you to get things from here when you're here on a Sunday morning. But he wants to change you by taking your eyes off of you and fixing your gaze upon Jesus. But apart from his divine grace, we have no affinity for him. We don't even long for that. We don't desire that. So you need to begin to ask yourself this question. Part of the the, the thrust of this text and the intention of this text is Paul wants you to be able to look at your life, to be able to look at the internal affections and desires of your heart and say this, am I actually in Christ? And if so, praise God. But to do that, you actually have to let this text kind of do some heart work upon you. The nature of our heart is reflected in the things we value most. So let me just ask you some questions to help you maybe process this a little bit. What do you value most in life? What do you pursue most? What are you most preoccupied with day to day? What do you spend most of your money on? What do you spend most of your time thinking about or doing You see, those are the kinds of questions that will show you what you love most. And Jesus said it like this, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Your treasure shows you your heart, and your heart keeps chasing your treasure. Whatever I invest myself in will determine my direction, my affections, and my affinities, and whatever it is I'm investing in is revealing and exposing my affections and my affinities, my desires. And it will show you, listen, your state if you are apart from God or if you are in Christ Jesus. But listen, apart from the grace of God, we have no affinity for him. Why? Because of this last point. If you're in the flesh, you have no ability. No ability. 
It's not just that you're new, there's no neutrality, not just that you have no affinity, you actually have no ability. The Christian life is not simply about, you know what, I'm just going to sit here and I am going to work up a desire for God. If I just try hard enough, maybe I'll I'll love God more. Maybe, Maybe I can force myself, maybe I can fan that passion into flame. Maybe I can conjure it up in myself. That's not what the Christian life is. It is supernatural. It is a divine miracle of God that you have any love for him at all and desire for him. That is the working of the Holy Spirit. In the flesh, we have no ability. Look at verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. In other words, that hostility is reflected in this. God, I don't want your law. I don't want you as an authority. I don't want to answer to you. And the reason that we can't do that, or so that we don't do that, sorry, is it followed there in verse 7. Do you see that? Indeed, it cannot. In your natural condition, you just can't, you can't. It's not possible. You are dead in your trespasses in sin. In fact, look at verse 8. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You can't. The flesh can't save itself because the flesh, to be in the flesh, is death. That hostility It's the natural byproduct that you cannot fix. You cannot fix yourself. And and the death that we experience, it's it's multifaceted. There's a kind of death you experience now if you're living in the flesh. Romans 3 says that ruin and misery mark the paths of everyone who walk in sin. That there's this process of death that occurs every time we live in sin. Every day we walk in sin. It kills us. And it's not just a mindset, it, its ways are death, but not just death in this life. It's not just physical death, and it's not just kind of this ongoing process of death in, in this temporal life that we live. It points to a greater death, a lasting death. It points to an eternal death where we get none of the good graces of God for all eternity. We get only just condemnation and wrath. And one of the reasons why we cannot submit to God, I think, is because we so often are unaware of our spiritual condition. We don't realize that we're blind. We don't realize that we're dead. And people get so offended sometimes when you tell them that they're spiritually dead. Or, 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 or you, know what, you know what really gets people offended? When you tell them that they can't save themselves. Because the human, the human desire and the fallen nature longs to be self-sufficient, longs to be self-reliant. It's amazing. Sometimes, you know, you, you've heard people kind of mock Christianity with statements like, oh, Christianity is just a crutch. I, I, that's always confusing. Why is it a bad thing if you need a crutch? Like, aren't crutches helpful? But the problem with that is that Christians don't just need a crutch, right? Dead people don't need crutches. Dead people need to be brought to life. And that's what the Bible teaches is absolutely necessary for us. And the reason that that statements like, you need Jesus, are so offensive to people, listen, here's the reason. It's because it offends the deepest part of our self-sufficiency. It tells us we can't do it. And there's something in us that just detests that. C.S. Lewis, he wrote a, a spiritual autobiography. It's called Surprised by Joy. And in it, he tracks his journey to faith 
And, and he was an ardent atheist for a long time. And he, he tracks this process of wrestling with the truths of the gospel. And, and, and I love his thinking because it shows this hostility towards God, and it shows this place of unbelief, and it shows this natural defiance and resistance to wanting to embrace God as God. Let, let me just give you a taste of what he says. He says, I maintain, this is as an unbeliever, that God did not exist. It's his first premise. He says, I was also very angry with him for not existing. And then he says this, I was equally as angry with him for creating a world. You feel the tension there? You see the movement, the recognition, but the unwillingness, the unbelief, the hostility that cannot submit to God. And this lack of ability, it means, as verse 8 tells us, that we cannot please God apart from God's grace. You say, what does that mean, that, that we can't do anything good? No, no. Common grace, in God's common grace, we can do a lot of things that are good. We can help people. We can be a blessing to people. We can do things that are right and moral. But here's what it means. It means that there is a moral inability to obey God from the heart. You have no ability to actually please God because you, can't, you don't love God from the heart. You may give the appearance of loving God. You may do things that look like they're acts that would love God. But from the heart, your, your, your rationale, your motivation is not the glory of God. It's not because you love God. It's not because you desire God. You can't please God. We're so hostile and rebellious to the idea of being under grace. And... Hebrews 11 verse 6 tells us this, that without faith, it's impossible to please God. You can't please God because you don't have faith. The problem is this, is faith is something that must be given to you as a gift in and of itself. You're like, well, where does that leave me? I have no ability to change my situation. Is that what you're telling me, Ian? Yes, exactly which is why you desperately need to be rescued from the ruin of sin, and God in his great love comes to the rescue. This is the hope of the gospel. He comes to the rescue for you. He comes and finds you. He comes and dies in your place. He comes and rises from the grave. He comes so that he can take your death and put it to death, and he can give you newness of life in the spirit of God. And that's what we see, secondly, that God must restore us by the recreation of the spirit. He's got to take us from this place of ruin and sin, and he has to completely restore us through the recreation of the Spirit of God. And as we look at what it means to live in the Spirit here, here's what I want you to, to, to note. All the statements in this passage are objective truths about the Christian life, okay? He's pointing out things that are true. In other words, this isn't a how-to message. This isn't what you have to start doing in order to have life in the Spirit. That's not what he's talking about here. He's not telling you how you can be filled with the Spirit. He's not talking, telling you how you can walk in the, 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 the Spirit. He's not talking about that at all. He's simply describing for you what it means to be in the Spirit. He's talking about the general realities for the Christian as they live by the Spirit of God. That's what God does through the gospel. And, and, and here I want to show you three things that God does. These should be true. And again, here's the point. These should be true of you. And you, if you're a Christian here today, should hear these things. You should evaluate your life, and you should come out on the other side of the saying, yes, 
Yes, praise God, that's me. First, it means we're given a new disposition. This is the opposite of hostility. Verse 5, he says, For those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their mind on the things of the Spirit. This is what you do. Your mind is set on the things of the Spirit. Look at verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. To live by the Spirit is to have this new disposition. It's it's to not be in the flesh. Fundamentally speaking, it's to be utterly changed and transformed from the inside out. And this disposition is seen in two ways. One, you have a new disposition toward the world. You look at the world and the world, the things that you used to love, the things that you used to do, the things that used to consume you, they no longer do. There's a radical separation This is so fundamentally true of the Christian that what we read in the New Testament is that the believer is actually supposed to see themselves as an exile on this earth, as a stranger on this earth, as an alien on this earth. In other words, we're supposed to look at this earth and say, this place is good because it's created by God, but this earth is not my home. This is not where I find my identity. This is not where I I find fulfillment and meaning and purpose. This world, this life cannot give me those things that my heart longs for and is created to know and experience in full. The disposition towards, towards the world is shifted to, listen, a new disposition toward God. Where we find all of those things I just mentioned in him, where we see that all of those longings and desires and passions and cravings of the soul are met fully in him alone. He consumes us. He defines us. We want him more than we want anything. The Christian says, essentially, listen, you can have all the world. Just give me Jesus. Because the Christian recognizes, listen, that this world is not all there is. We are here before a moment. We're gonna blink. We're gonna blink, and we're gonna be standing in the presence of the creator of the universe. The only question that's the only thing that's gonna matter, listen, is what your disposition toward him is. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? forfeits his soul. This new disposition is a change in realm. We're not dominated by the flesh. It's not the ruling power of our life any longer. We struggle with the flesh? Absolutely. Read Galatians 5, that the flesh and the spirit wage war against each other. But again, we're transferred out of that realm, never to be transferred back in. Spirit makes his home in us. This is the best part. Not only the Spirit of God changes us, right? It opens our eyes, but also makes his home within us. We are united to Christ. Did you notice that too, by the way? He calls, he shifts gears there in verse 9. He says, anyone who does not, did you catch this, have the Spirit of Christ? Do you see that? 
That's not a different spirit, okay? Like, it's not like Jesus has his own spirit and, and the spirit has his own spirit and God. It's not, it's not what this is. He's talking about, listen, the inseparability of the members of the Trinity, that if you are in the spirit, you have the spirit of Christ. You have Christ in you, the hope of glory. You're tethered to him in such an intimate and supernaturally powerful way. It is indivisible. His death is your death. His life is your life. I mean, so much so, listen, the Spirit of God, His working throughout the Scriptures, one of the things you need to see is this. It's the Spirit of God who gives life. It was the Spirit of God, the breath of God, so to speak. That's the Spirit, listen, who who brought life into existence in the beginning of the Bible. It is the Spirit of God who makes us new creations. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And this transformational process, it begins from the inside out. It's about who you fundamentally are now. We have a new nature, no longer hostile to God, but reconciled to God, no longer rebellious toward God, but submissive to God, coming under his law, wanting his authority in our lives, wanting him to be Lord and master. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We give him everything. And where we were separated by sin, we're now restored by grace. And this new disposition is followed by a new direction, a new direction that defines us. Again, this goes back to the the language that he uses there about the, the mind that is set on the spirit And this is so helpful for for us to understand as believers that one of the most decisive and powerful and potent acts of God in your life is to direct the direction of your mind. to cultivate in you this Godward orientation, this complete shift in your desires, in the way you you think, in the things that you love, and in the way that you live. It's a fascinating question just to consider what the Spirit of God does in the Bible. Because oftentimes when we think of the Spirit of God, like when we think of the power of the Spirit of God, you want to know what our mind typically runs to? It runs to the the evidences of the miracles in Scripture, right? You see Jesus healing people who were born blind, people sprouting limbs that they they never had, people who'd never been able to walk standing up, people who are dead being brought back to life. But I think sometimes we get overly obsessed with what we deem as these very powerful acts of God, and we miss the most powerful act of the Holy Spirit, which is the act of the Spirit of God to bring dead people, spiritually dead people, to life in Jesus Christ. What is the ministry of the Spirit of God? You read through the New Testament. In the book of John, John says the Spirit of God is convicting the world. He was sent to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Jesus said that. See, what does that mean? It means this, that he will create in us an awareness of sin and conviction of it and convince us that that there's judgment and condemnation that we rightly deserve. This is what the Spirit of God is primarily doing in the world. 
John 16 tells us that Jesus, or excuse me, the Spirit of God testifies to Jesus. In other words, not only does he convict us of our our need for a Savior, he testifies and he points us to the need of a Savior. He illuminates our minds and our eyes. He enables us to see and believe and embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the mighty working of the Spirit of God. The Spirit causes us to look to God's provision because we have none in ourselves. The Spirit reminds us and reveals to us that we are utterly bankrupt and we so desperately need God's grace. And he directs us to Jesus by working in our minds and our hearts, our affections, reorienting the desires in the direction of our life. And the Spirit of God comes and dwells in us, Paul says. He makes us his home. And that then begins to produce more things of the Spirit of God in us, the evidences of God's grace and God's saving work. You say, what what are those things? We can look at the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. For sure, you should see evidences of those things growing in your heart, a love for those things. But there is now a new desire to glorify Jesus Christ, to magnify Christ. There's this incredible desire to be pleasing to him in everything you do from the inside out. Your desires are for him, for him to receive glory, for him to receive honor, for him to receive praise. Everything begins to be reoriented towards him and his glory. Through the gospel... And with the indwelling presence of the Spirit, we are empowered to submit to God and to his law. We want to do so, and we do so not perfectly, but increasingly so as we surrender to him. In fact, we make it our aim to please him, Paul says. We can love God now. And we can love others in the way we're supposed to because of his supernatural love that is shed abroad in our hearts through the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God. There are new desires for communion with God. New recognition of our own inability and increased recognition of our dependency upon him through prayer and and through the, the word of God and through the people of God. There's increasing concern for our own spiritual welfare, what is right and pleasing to God, and therefore what is good for me and for my soul. There's increasing abstaining from those things that damage our spiritual growth and well-being. There's a concern for the spiritual welfare of others, for seeing people grow and to know Jesus Christ. There's an increased desire to meet people's practical needs, but even more so to meet their spiritual needs. There's an increased desire to tell people about the saving work of Jesus Christ. These and so much more are evidences of the Spirit of God at work in your life. And if that's there, it leads to this finally, a new destiny. You see, our mindset has eternal consequences We saw that in the flesh there is death both here and for eternity. But in contrast, verse 6 tells us that to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. I wonder how you define life. 
In John 17, Jesus said this, this is eternal life that you know God. This is life, knowing God, enjoying God, and living for God. This is life. This is the chief end of man. This is the very reason you were created by God in the first place. That is true life. And in this life in the spirit, you enjoy peace. Peace objectively between you and God. There's no more hostility. Instead of being hostile, you're reconciled. You're friends. You're no longer an enemy. You are welcomed as a child. And that peace extends into the future. Listen, the great peace and security you have if you're in Christ is that one day you're going to stand before God. Every one of us is going to die and stand before God. And on that day, we will be at peace with God. We do not have to live in fear of what God may say to us. We know if we're in Christ. We know because of the peace of God that surpasses all understanding that lives in us because of the Spirit of God. We know that one day we will stand before God and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. The spirit of Christ is manifesting the character of Christ in you. Listen, you can be sure that the spirit of God is indeed in you. That you, I love this in verse 9, that you actually belong to Christ. Oh, we long for belonging, don't we? We crave it. Everybody does. The only answer we have to that craving in our soul is this, that you can belong to Christ. You can belong to him now, and you can belong to him forever. You can be secure in that belonging, knowing that you will never be cast off, knowing that he will never leave or forsake you, knowing that he is yours and you are his. If God has truly changed you from the inside out, listen, the spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. God puts the Spirit of God in our lives, in other words, as the evidence that He has indeed redeemed us. And listen, He puts the Spirit there as a guarantee, as a deposit that reminds us that one day we will be redeemed in full. Look at verse 10 and 11. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, though though we still live in this mortal body that is still under the curse of sin, Look at this. The Spirit is life because of righteousness. You get to experience the the life-giving power of Jesus Christ right now because He has fulfilled the perfect law of righteousness on your behalf. He's given it to you, and now you can walk in righteousness yourself. Verse 11, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Listen, loved ones, this is pointing you towards what one day will be. In time, listen, in time... The body that's now under the curse of death, this mortal body that will die and will decay, it will one day be resurrected. And the same life that Jesus enjoys in his resurrected body is the life that you will enjoy. The resurrection of Jesus reminds us that we will spend an overwhelming majority of our existence in a newly created body. 
The indwelling spirit is the guarantee of this reality for you if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. You see, if you belong to Christ, there will come a day. This is what this means. Listen, this is so good. Think about, listen, right now, living in the body, still tainted by sin. Listen, one day, a day is coming where the eyes in your head are never going to look lustfully at another person where the thoughts of your mind are never going to lead you to fear and anxiety and worry, where the desires of your heart will never be for your own glory and your own reputation, where you will never struggle with anger towards another person again, where you will never say a word that hurts and damages another person Never, one day, you will be given a new body in which all of those things will be absolutely impossible. Every part of your existence in that moment, every fiber of your being will be longing to and actually accomplishing a life that is fully pleasing to God. Has the gospel changed you? That's the question. Has the gospel changed you from the inside out? If so, if you're in Christ this morning, listen, rejoice for what Jesus Christ has done for you in the gospel, what the Spirit of God has done in you. Celebrate the security that you have in Christ Jesus. And if not, listen, if you're here today and you're realizing maybe for the first time that you're not in Christ, that you're living in the flesh, not the Spirit, repent and believe today and be changed forever. That's the call. Come, come and see, come and experience, come and enjoy the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. Come to life today and live with God forever. For we shall all be changed, Paul says. We shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. God, you are good to us. And Father, we long for that day, God, where sin and death will be fully destroyed, where we will have a new bodies, where our, our minds, Lord, holistically, all of our being will be set upon you, never impacted by the presence and power of sin, only driven, Lord, by desires for you, only living to please you. Oh God, may, may that security that we have in the future, Lord, may it spur us on to faithfulness now in the present. May we live in the security of the gospel today and tomorrow and every day after. God, grateful that your spirit is in us, if indeed the spirit of Christ is living within us. And I pray, Father, that our days on this earth will be lived for you. God, may it be our aim to please you, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen.